In conversation. In conversation. In conversation. In conversation. In conversation with Fay Heavy Shield. Perspectives of time. Welcome. As part of its ongoing community outreach and in-gallery interpretive initiatives, the Art Gallery of Alberta is producing a podcast series titled In Conversation. This series is designed to complement the interpretive content of major AGA exhibitions by providing listeners with interviews from exhibiting artists and other creative professionals. Today is Thursday, October 26, 2017. My name is Namka Besky and I will be conducting this interview with artist Faye Heavy Shield at the occasion of her exhibition at the Art Gallery of Alberta, Faye Heavy Shield Calling Stones Conversations, opening tomorrow, Friday, October 27th. Faye Heavy Shield is a Kanai Blood Nation artist born in 1953. She currently lives and practices in the Blood Reserve in southern Alberta, Canada. Hello, Faye. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for being here today. Um, before we begin the interview, I I would like to take the um, the opportunity to acknowledge that we're sitting here at the Art Gallery of Alberta on Treaty Six territory, um, the original home of over 16 First Nations and a traditional meeting ground um, for Indigenous peoples. Um, I would like to start our conversation by. Um, asking you if you could introduce yourself in your own words and um, tell us more about your artistic practice. Uh, well, I am, I've been making art now probably about 30 years. Doesn't seem, seem that long, but um, I'm, I'm a grandmother. I have six grandchildren. I I live uh, in my home community, which is the Blood Reserve. I live in in the house that my grandmother built, uh, and I'm I don't really know what else to say. My practice consists of uh, really simple things like. Uh, Recordings through photographs, uh, audio sometimes, uh, and I think it's, I would have to say mainly about land, uh, land and place. I guess place is a more accurate, uh, I guess, word to use. Um, uh, and community, I guess. So you um, you just made this connection to the community, and I guess I wanted to add that you you come from the the Kenai community, also referred as um, Blood Nation, in the foothills in of southern Alberta. Now the publication that will accompany the exhibition uh, features an essay by Christy Trinier 
in which she wrote that the blood simply means family to you, both your immediate family, but also your extended community of the Kanai peoples near Standoff. Could you, could you explain further what makes you consider the larger Kanai community as an extended family and how that might have influenced your practice? I think to begin with, it's uh, my my definition of community. It's not restricted to people. Community for me means also well, place again, mm-hmm. uh, language. So th- something that is shared, and so there's a shared uh, shared history for sure. Uh, shared. Uh, stories and so I guess for me community it's it's intertwined with with place because just like the word culture when people use the word culture it's it sounds to me sometimes like that it's separate or there are things that are separate that make up this culture but I feel that culture is what you live. And mm-hmm. so it's not really something that can be relegated to the past. Because of my language, because I still speak Blackfoot, I share something with someone who lived 500 years ago. So in that sense, they're still living because of the sound of the language. There is the, um, the still present. Mm-hmm. Um, in everyday life. When we were preparing this, this exhibition, you mentioned at some point that the, the works were inspired by a place, Majorville Medicine Wheel, located southeast of Calgary, and an ancestral story. Could you share with me the story of, um, of a girl in the sky and, and how it relates to that, to that specific place? Well, it's, it's the stories that my... The, my grandmother used to tell me that was just one of many, and I, uh, uh, I don't think I could do it justice by trying to, you know, replicate, you know, the whole story. But it's it's about a, a young woman who falls in love with the morning star, and so she has such yearning to to be with this morning star, and so morning star and. Uh, in, in in many of our I don't know legends maybe there are everything has a spirit and so in 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 the old stories the animals could talk rocks could talk and so in this case the morning star you know happened to be I guess a very attractive man also. <laughs> And so she she wanted to to be with him, and so the sun granted her that, and so she was taken up into the heavens, so she could be with Morning Star. But while she was up there, was sun and moon, uh, they were away quite a bit, and so she was left to herself, I guess, quite a bit of the time. And so the only the only limits that were put on her were that she could not, there was a wild turnip growing, and she couldn't pull that. So she was told not to 
disturb this wild turnip that's growing. So of course she had to. And so when she she dug this wild turnip out, the hole that was left by the root, she could see her home camp through there. And when she saw her home camp, her family, she was overcome with uh, homesickness mm. and a longing to go back. But again, there was no um, reprimand of any kind. It was that's one thing that I really see in a lot of our stories is that it's always about gentleness. There's no punishment or harshness, you know, unnecessary harshness. And so she she was allowed to go back. And there are other things connected with the story that have to do with ceremony, but I, because it's not my place to say, I, okay. I'm just going with the really basic uh, version. <coughs> and so she was... Uh, she was allowed to go back home. And and how she came back home was on this, um, I see it as a filament, like a spider web thread. Oh, well, that's how I imagined mm-hmm. it. I don't know if that's what my grandmother actually said, but it's that's what I envisioned when yeah. I heard the story several times. And so when, when I finally got to visit them, the medicine wheel, the story that our guide told us was that the place we were standing was the exact place where she came back to earth. Like it was just like being shot through with magic, you know, that you, you're standing in the very spot that the story that you heard and, and maybe you thought that it was, I, I think I always thought that these stories, they did come out of something real. But I didn't concentrate on that. I just concentrated on, like, the adventure that was in the stories and, you know, just being engaged by the story. But I think that was when I realized that it was a true story. Yeah. And I was actually physically in that place. And so it really had a profound effect on me. And the other part of part of that experience is that just a few minutes away from the medicine wheel, down the slope of the hill is where we were told that's where you could gather these, uh, they're called Iniskim buffalo calling stones. And so buffalo calling stones are, I don't want to call them charms because that seems sort of trivial, but uh, they're fossil type stones that they were used in ceremony when our people uh, depended on the buffalo for for sustenance and for their very existence. And so they were used in a ceremony and they would call the buffalo to, you know, to come to the people. And and so we were told that on the side of this hill is where you could gather these stones. And so the group went down and we started looking. And because I'm, I get dizzy easily, so... I didn't want to wander too far down the hill. And as usual, I had my camera taking pictures. And about, I think it was maybe, I don't really recall now how how long before, but at one point, I would say maybe a year, year or so before, I had been, um, well, you know, you get, get into those times as an artist where you say, I haven't done any drawing. I got to do some drawing. You know, it's been so long, like, call yourself an artist you never draw (laughs) yeah so I um 
it was one of those times that I started kind of, I guess, more like doodling or sketching. Yeah. And the image that I kept drawing was a hillside, and it had these figures on the hillside. And so the drawing itself, I knew that the figures weren't falling, they weren't climbing, but they were part of the scene. And uh, so that, of course, was put to the side. I never really did you know, pursue it any further. But when I was sitting on the side of the hill and taking pictures and then going back through, looking at my pictures, then I saw my drawing. And so that was the second, you know, amazing thing that happened to me that day. So I knew I had to do something. When I was thinking about, you know, how to, how to refer to that story, um, I was thinking about it more as an anecdote or a memory almost like a memory, mm -hmm. something that is embedded in you somehow and comes back to the surface. And that's a little bit what happened mm -hmm. when you were on that hill and all of a sudden you made that connection. I guess I would be curious to know, you know, about the, the importance of oral traditions in, in, in your life and, and the artistic practice that you have, how that impacts, you know, the, um, your process of, um, of creation, inspiration, transmission? Uh, I know for sure that it's, it fostered uh, imagination uh, and, and I think how that was so strongly reinforced, not just, you know, because the stories were told over and over again, but also because, um, because of my grandmother's voice. And when the, when the story would start, it seemed as though the storyteller would recede and would leave the story open or the experience open for the listener to, uh, to enter into that story, which is what I did as a child, because in the stories that were told to me, like I was right there as a witness, if sometimes not a participant. There's not really... Anything, I don't think, that's come close to that, uh, I guess, level of maybe, maybe something being so vivid and so intense. The only experience that's really come close is, is reading um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And, uh, you know, when I read his... 100 years of solitude yeah. it was like being with my it was like listening to my grandmother it was just uh, you know and I, there's not many times that's happened you know that it can, that you can relate to something so so intense but he of course was a master I'd like to talk about one work in particular translation because we're talking about oral um, uh, traditions and transmission. So if I had to describe it to, um, to the listener, I would, I would say in the gallery space, uh, you enter in a dark room in which you have a video installation, a screen with sound. The video is looping and the screen is, the screen is divided in, uh, in two. One side is showing you, I, I guess it's you, repeating words in Blackfoot We've I noticed a delay, a delay between the sound and um, the movement of your lips. 
And on the other side, I can see some layers of photographs of, I believe, you on the hill or the person accompanying you when you, uh, when you went to, uh, to a medicine uh, wheel, um, and also some sketches of this figurine cut out that you can find in, um, in other works in, in the gallery, in the exhibition. So first, um, I guess I'd like for you to tell us a bit more about this piece in particular and, and how this video installation was, was made in collaboration with uh, members of your family and how that collaboration has somewhat shaped the work that way. Well, first of all, I'll clarify the, the person who's, who's on the video speaking is my daughter. And uh, there are some figures in, in the images next yeah. to it. Uh, one is my son, one is my grandson. So yeah. there are different members of this group that went to visit the medicine wheel. And when, when I first started examining how this work, um, just looking at all the different parts of it, how, how it could go in this direction, that direction, um, I think the main, uh, the main concept was it was about communication and how, first of all, the story that that my grandmother told me that experience, uh, the communication was uh, so embedded with um, with senses, and so it's it it was of course very powerful because the language, you know, was common, the knowledge of the story it had been told before, so there was a, a very deep familiarity, mm -hmm. and that really uh, strengthened this communication and how, how the images were ingested, I guess, and the sound. And so it was a very full um, way of taking in the communication. And when it came time to, to look at translation, one of the things that I, I thought of was at the point of contact, not many of our people where English, you know, knew the English language, and not many of the visitors knew Blackfoot. Yeah. And the translator was not a fluent Blackfoot speaker, neither was he a fluent English speaker. So everybody was kind of like in a limbo yeah. of communication. And you know, uh, so little or no, yeah, lost in translation. So it's, uh, I guess I wanted to convey that sense of this fragmentation that takes place when when you don't have that stream of connection to somebody who's telling you something or you're telling them something so in the video in this in the split screen my daughter uh, my daughter is speaking english but she, her voice is muted and the the other half of the screen has the visual images that are records of something, but you yeah. don't know what. But they are layered with drawings that you have no clue what the, what they are. Mm -hmm. And so everything is, um, I guess it's meant to really kind of knock the ground out from under you. Because on top of that, this overlay of the Blackfoot language 
not many people here when they go into that room will understand what yeah. I'm saying. And so everything, all your senses are being, I guess, um, confused. And to me that, I guess I was trying to imagine, you know, what what that could have been like and, and how much of our history is, you know, it was considered a foundation when, when these people met and started trying to talk to each other and they didn't share a history and so... It was just a, a place of, I would think, chaos. And so that chaos has determined a lot of things for a lot of people. That's interesting that you uh, make a reference to fragmentation because this is one of the um, notions that I kind of grasp for, um, from, from your work. We'll come to that um, a little bit later. Now we're talking a bit more about the, the artistic process itself, and um, and before we go further in that um, in, in in that conversation, I guess I'd like to set some 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 parameters. Um, um, much of your work in this exhibition was created in in response to 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 this place, Majorville. Now I haven't got the opportunity um, to visit the site myself, and. Um, and I guess I'm I'm intrigued at, at hearing you know what what the site looks looks like and in which circumstances did you did you visit um, the site how the site has been used in the past and how it might be used today. Uh, well, part of the work that I do in the community is um, it involves making connections to the home community for for children who are living out of the home and they're in foster care, they're, they're not with the community, they're not with family. And so one of the things that that takes place is we visit sites that are significant to Blackfoot people. And that was one of them that I had never visited and there had been, I think, three or four reschedules before it finally happened. So. I think basically it was for me curiosity. I wasn't expecting anything and I'm not affiliated in any way to ceremony mm -hmm. or or ritual unless um unless you can call cutting out fifteen hundred pieces of a paper. Ritual. <laughs> yes. A ritual, yeah. Yeah, on practice. Yeah. I guess is a ritual. And so <laughs> it's um but it was really good to be there because it, it it seemed even the time it took to get there, like like these postponements yeah. included, and then you go to this small town and then you kind of drive off the road, and then after you leave the houses, then you travel for another maybe 20 minutes down a grassy, you know, just ruts and grass, and it's in the middle of really nowhere, but it's somewhere. And you know, turns out to be a really big somewhere. And um, even even the hill that the that the medicine wheel is on, it's uh, it seems to elevate you 
because you can see forever all around and it's just surrounded by beauty like it's got grass rolling uh, plains on one side and then on the east there's a river valley and so everything is so soft and rounded and motherly I guess uh, I don't know it was just a really beautiful day and then the wind was blowing a bit it's windy yeah yeah uh, so sounds as mm -hmm. well. And so I'm like I was really um, not that aware of of its history or um, you know its actual significance to me un until it told me and made itself felt you know to me. I I know it is used as a place of. Uh, I don't really want to say it's not worship, but it's a place where people can make offerings as uh, to acknowledge their connection to to their ancestors. But other than that, it's uh, for me it was um, it was uh, I guess a very personal connection yeah. to uh, not just the people that went before me, but you know just something really old. You know that I, and I was I was happy to know that it was true. So I try to I try to connect with a place, and the way I did it is by maybe trying to reference to another artwork that I could maybe talk about and um, and you know get a get your um, your 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 insight about it. So. I guess it's not not without you know necessarily making a, a direct comparison between a sacred place and um, in an artistic statement, your statement or the artist I'm going to mention. Um, the example I had in mind was the work of Walter de Maria. I brought with me um, uh, a picture so you could you could see it. And um, so this work is called Lightning Field. And it's from the 1970. It's from 1977. And so in this case, the artist has used 400 steel poles that he arranged into a grid, almost like a field, to attract lightning. And so the installation can only be viewed by six people at a time. Now, what I thought was really powerful is this idea that what really makes the work is the experience of the place, involving your body. And it's also all about the road trip. So you contact the artist, you're selected, you're part of a group of five people, the artist will take you there, you're blinded, you're, you, don't, you don't know where you're going. And then you arrive in, um, on the site, and you arrive at the shelter, and then you wait. And so part of the process is also wait, um, not really knowing what's going to happen, and so all of a sudden, by your presence, the site is activated uh, in one way. And then after that, the element comes in. And so you need a storm. You need a natural element to come in. That's how the work exists. And so when I was thinking about you know, your work and kind of getting familiar with, um, with your body of work, my first instinct was to, to kind of qualify it as a site-specific. As I was discovering more, I felt it would be more accurate to describe your work as site responsive. In a way, a little bit like Walter de Maria, he's um, responding to a particular physical location. 
Would you agree with the terminology site responsive? I would, uh, especially in in an ongoing work that uh, let's say now it's been maybe five or six years, but it, uh, where I live, directly to the east is a land formation called a butte, and so the um, in Blackfoot it's Mokwansin, uh, the belly buttes. So at the base of these buttes is where um, the uh, Sundance gathering has taken place for many, many years. But the reason I'm, I chose to start uh, documenting that is that every, every time I let open the door, I, I look to the east and I, I see that. And so I began to wonder how, what would happen if, um, if I just recorded it. And, you know, time and time and time, and sometimes three times a day, sometimes twice a week. And one of the things I think I was wondering about is, will there come a time when I don't have to record it, that it'll be, if I close my eyes, that I'll be able to record it with my own hand, mm -hmm. which hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but I think that's what I had initially started thinking about. But what ended up happening was it ended up being about sameness and difference at the same time because there was always the horizon, but then everything else started coming into play, the time of day, the season. And so that, of course, would influence the, the whole picture color, everything. And so it's, I guess, I guess it would be true in, in that sense. And also too, there's, um, uh, I find when it's, when you're responding to the word, then it requires, um, I guess, um, liveliness of some sort that it's, it's not placed on the wall and the painting stays the same forever. In, in, in another work, which is called Body of Land, it's, it's cones that are formed, little paper cones that are formed out of uh, close-ups of skin. And so that began, you know, quite a few years ago, but it's still getting new skin added to it. So the last time I went there, um, like some of the gallery people added, uh, one of the gallery prep people added her, took a picture of her hand and then her daughter's hand, and, and then she placed it in this camp of paper cones. Uh, my granddaughter, my, my son sent my granddaughter's prints, hand print, so that was placed in, in this camp. So in that way, it's, it is site-specific in that, but in a, I think in a very... I guess a, a, a basic definition of the word in that when you do go to the gallery, the physical dimension of, of this structure will determine, you know, the, the setup or whatever. But e even before that, I, th I think responsive is a better word because it maintains that life in, in that work where that you're, uh, you're reflecting on the changes that take place. And maybe it's as simple as that, just recording the changes, or you, you record your, what you learn. 
or leaving it open. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost like the work is never done or mm -hmm. finished, right? It evolves, it transforms. I guess another word would be mindfulness, to be mindful about, you know, your your surroundings. And, and so in this particular case, um, for instance, when you when you think about responsiveness or mindfulness um, in regards to the site or in regards to to the work and what makes us human, as human as we are, do you think that medicine will can make us more aware about our time and place in the universe? The site itself? The site itself and maybe how you approached it as well. How um, um, what was your perception? Did it make you think about the time and place you are in the universe and how um, the way I connected to your work is, for instance, when I think about um, the work recalling, you have that constant connection between past, present and future and the contact between the generations. So in that way, it makes you think about where, where you stand on that land. So that mindfulness in regards to the sites and then in regards to your practice? Well, I think for me it did. If, if you know, I think that's where that specificity would come in because it, that's, that's how I was affected. And it, it brought to mind that, you know, this other thing that, that I wanted to, I guess, converse with is that idea of time I think it's it's time and those two words, time and history, have been so often used together that it's almost like people have come to see them as interchangeable. So that if something happened uh, 50 years ago, okay, well, that's history. And just what we were talking about with culture, well, I can say, gohkitopi. Uh, and that name is very old, but it's also, it was my father's name, and it's a really old, it's old in that Blackfoot language is old, and it's um, like coming closer to our time, it was my father's name, but yet today it's my son's name. And so what does time have to do with that? You know, like time is just, I guess it's, it's um, bending time, I guess would be uh, something that I really hoped would come through in what well, came through for me. And, you know, when I was working with um, just these different ideas that came out of this experience. And, and that's what happens too when you're sitting and you're obsessively cutting paper or yeah. <laughs> doing yeah. these little drawings. Uh, that's when it's quiet and the work talks to you. I guess for me it's not really fun if, if there's if something predetermines the work, such as a gallery space. Uh, you'd like to be able to, the work has to be the boss. If we think about the site itself, Majorville Medicine Wheel seems to represent, to me at least, a conflicting idea of, 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 of history and land use in the sense that it exists on private land and so I'm not sure exactly how easy it is to access it to begin with. Um, and, so, and so I can imagine that if it's, you know, used for um, ceremonial purposes or, um, 
So there is a bit of a contradiction here to begin with. But also, some people might also consider the ground as an archaeological site. And that's actually how I got introduced to it when I did you know, some online research. Um, and so would be surprised to learn about um, you know, ceremonies that are happening, well, the fact that it, it, it might still be an active, an active site. So it's this idea that a site is at, at the same time both considered contemporary and historical. So you have that perception, if I can clarify, I guess, the, the thought. There is this conflicting idea between maybe a more linear approach of history as a succession of events, and so you refer to it as a past event history, versus a more um, cyclical concept of history as something that comes back and that is comes back in different shape or different form, but is still there, present, alive. All right, so we, we, we talked about yourself, we talked about your familial link um, with a Kanai blood nation you're part of. Um, we talked about the particularities of, of Majorville Medicine Wheel as an active site. I'd like to focus more on, um, on these two aspects um, and how they materialize themselves in this exhibition. Um, so could you tell us more about how the discussion with curator Catherine Croston went and how that you know, helped with developing the organization or the layout of the exhibition? To be honest, it was the work that determined that. Um, it's, um, I, I know that I wanted process really to be at the forefront and evidence of process. And the the humility of the materials like in in the vitrines i have you'll see i didn't want to put the originals but i have photocopies of portraits of grandma done by a granddaughter it's a very good likeness it's a round head with <laughs> with two big eyes and that's it but i have things like that as part of what i see all the time and and even just I guess evidence of uh, okay this is how this came to be not that people really need to know but it's I think a way of showing respect to where this art came from which I don't really know but I know that it's I give thanks for it uh, and so whether that's words, paper, you know, all these things, um, little conversations through drawings, uh, communications um, with family, photos, those things, I think, serve as an, I guess, a visual introduction to, to the art, to the artist, and... I, I always knew that the hillside and, and the figures would have to be in, you know, the largest wall there was 
just to give them that room. And so the the work just sort of managed itself to be where it wanted to be. Um, and there were discussions of, say, for instance, signage. There was signage, I guess, it was supposed to be somewhere, but I didn't want it to be there just because it didn't need to be there. And so there's always a desire to get down to really basics, visually, in, in every way, because I I think that for whoever whoever visits your work, it's a way of um, also. Uh, acknowledging their presence that, okay, well, you don't need to have this explained. You know, you take it in with your eyes or you can listen to it. And, and from there, that's what happens. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I can't be there prodding you or, or directing you or yeah. otherwise you'd have these great big fingers pointing the way, which is, you know, not, not what the gallery is for. The gallery, I, I think it's for that experience. Well, when I was working through the space, I, I noticed a progression in how the works were organized up to what I would describe as a momentum in a way, which is when you when you meet the final piece, Calling Stone Recalling. And so you begin with the vitrines um, where you have some research material archive um, what you call index cards, almost as if you were kind of setting up the tone for the exhibition. And, and it finishes with this impressive reconstruction of the hill at Majorville. And, well, I guess, you know, um, that's where the fragmentation uh, began, in a way. It's almost as if you were giving us, a very, um, in a very subtle way, tools for us to be ready to view the hill. So we have these elements that are broken down and then we move on to translation as if we were somehow uh, being accustomed to hear the language. And it's really an experience, I would say. And then finally, you're ready to uh, experience the hill, understand it, or maybe you're more sensitive to it. Could you maybe share a bit more inside details about, you know, the the intention between that that progression? Well, that's determined by the work as well, you know, because it's, I guess, in a way, in a way, it is a narrative because you're not going to meet someone at the door and say, "Oh, the butler did it," you know. It's it does have to have a sense of getting to know the materials. And I think it's it's also a way of, without saying by signage or by uh, direction, that you're also uh, being given some, some sort of connection to the artist and the decisions that I made with the work. And I guess it's... It could be seen as um, you coming to visit me. And so we'll sit and we'll chat a bit and then then we'll get comfy. Okay, well, you can yeah. take off your shoes and then we'll have some tea. And then, you know, then... And so it's just a very, I guess, uh, 
I guess subtlety would be part of it, and also um, hospitality for sure, um, a, a sense of calm and, and serenity. I think the most active in, in the sense of sound or, or even visual action would be the video. And so I think that needs to be, you know, kind of out of your system by the time you get to the hill. Uh, you need that kind of walk down the hallway and and also to how it's set up so that um, there was supposed to be some signage across the one room that has the, um, the figures descending onto this disc. But when, when you're talking about uh, site-specific in the gallery, then you place yourself, okay, as, as the viewer, just first seeing the work. And I know that people, even if they're turned away from something, there's a, a kind of radar that you know something's behind you. And so that's going to distract from what you're seeing. And so you need to kind of get rid of that and just spend time with, you know, what you're going to be seeing. And also walking down the, um, the hallway, then you do see a bit of the hill. And so that kind of adds a little bit of um, maybe anticipation or curiosity, but not enough that it's, you know, that you're going to bypass other things. Well, I definitely felt that with the little pieces that I saw. <laughs> um, as we were talking about, you know, how the sites can represent contra contrasting views of time and space, whether you refer to the site as an ancient monument or an active site, something that I felt really strongly was this uh, con concept of uh, temporality or time, time suspended, actually almost as a moment in between or a moment in transition to be more precise. So I'm, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation <laughs> because it's confirming <laughs> somewhat my perception. Um, so it seemed for me to take a central place in, uh, in your work. And I guess I was curious to know about how, how you express that element of time through, um, you know, suspension of material. So if you think about the work, many voices, one story, one voice, many stories. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about, about that work in particular. Having the figures suspended on uh, on the um, fishing line, I think it, it serves to, to give the viewer um, more than one perspective of, first of all, the figures and there's no there's no one focal point and so there's there's not really a place for you to okay well I'm going to stand here in front of this painting and I'm going to study it I think it's it it offers an invitation to to go into the work and and because the little figures are you know just by their scale they're very fragile, they're hanging on really delicate suspended uh, structure and they'll move because when you come closer your your body will push the air out a bit more so your your presence is uh, is being part of the work. So all those things are, are considerations when at, you know there's a, there's changes that took place because 
when I when I was thinking about it at first, I I wanted it to be almost like a diorama. And and so the the um, uh, units would be sprung from wall to wall. But you know, being being in the gallery and just getting a sense of the of the space, it would have cut off too too much for the viewer, especially with you know you have this disc that right away says, well, it, this is a circle. You walk around it. And so that would have been a contradiction, yeah. uh, you know, conflict. So that changed. Uh, and so there's all, always shifts in, in uh, depending on, uh, you know, what the what the work says it wants to say, you know. And so with that, like you see, you see these little units hanging on on that thread, but they're not connected. And so. And if you have to look really close, and you, you can't say that they're they're either coming from or or rising, uh, so there's also that uh, sort of um, neither here nor there thing, yeah. which you know is uh, I guess related to that idea of time not being um, a determining factor, that it's just kind of floating, having fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I would almost add that um, the the exhibition feels different because because of your presence and we mentioned that um, a little bit earlier because you're an essential part of it. Um, there's a number of quotes, but also empty space, empty walls um, that punctuate the exhibition, and so and so your words and and your voice as an artist exist literally in the space as well as these moments of silence, which are determin determining your experience of the exhibition. How do you think these punctuations might, might change the audience response to the work? Mm. Well, I know the, the rhythm, I don't know if that's the right word, because rhythm, it kind of means like an orchestrated beat almost. Uh, which is not what is there. It's, um, I guess it's more of um, like an organic feel so that, okay, well, there's something here that's, uh, here's a, here's the sound of Blackfoot. Well, you can't have that throughout. Otherwise, it would be a totally different show. It would be about, about the Blackfoot voice. And so those areas of, Silence, you need to have that because it's, um, well, the, the space and the work, whatever you see, whatever you hear, that itself is a conversation. I think what a lot of times what, what my work is influenced by is like living on the prairie. And it's a very, um, it's not flat by any means, but it's a very soothing, uh, and, and it's not like you'll see prairie, a little bit of a butte or coolies, especially coolies because the coolies are very, almost like ocean waves visually. 
and and so that goes on for a while and then the foothills build into the mountains so there's no really uh, abrupt contrast it's it's just a very nice uh, sound wave of maybe a very good song it's a transition but that is worth noticing right this mm -hmm. is something you have to take in mm -hmm. so Faye we could uh, continue this conversation <laughs> all night <laughs> but we're running out of time here and I know you have to return to the galleries at some point so so I guess in an attempt to to conclude this uh, this dialogue I have two last questions for you the first one being what message would you like visitors and listeners to um, to live with after after experiencing the exhibition Mm. Well, I think it's like any visit. You don't really want the, you don't have an, in, there's no message intended. You just hope that it was a good visit and if, you know, that, that they enjoyed being there. But as far as message, it would be, mm, that would mean I would have to stand there and, and say, mm -hmm. oh, did you get this or did you, how did you feel about this? And like, as I'm following you yeah. out the door kind of yeah, thing, which true. it would be just totally that's annoying. True. <laughs> that's true. Um, maybe more um, mindfulness, just to stop for a while and, and, and um, take the time mm -hmm. to look at these pieces and think about what they do to you as a, as a visitor, I guess, mm -hmm. with your background, with all your your, your you know baggage that you have and I guess my other uh, my other question is not really a question but um, it's um, this idea that I that I have I'd like to uh, initiate a new tradition for this podcast series and as a way to close the circle to kind of round up the conversation I'd like to ask you to name our conversation so depending on your mood what comes to mind um, the idea here is to capture that moment of our encounter and and I have to say that will become the title of a podcast <laughs> so if you had to give this conversation a name what would that be mm, gosh might be here all night then <laughs> <laughs> I take so long to to respond sometimes um I think it it could be having time because I think when you you would have to get acquainted with time to have the time. So it's it's um, you know because we talked about that quite a bit and became a little bit more familiar with different facets of you know uh, perspectives of time and perspectives of time maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So, yeah, Pei, I, I really, truly would like to thank you for your time and, um, and your generosity. And I invite listeners um, to experience Calling Stones conversations at the Art Gallery of Alberta on display until February 19, 2018. And, of course, to read the accompanying publication soon to be released by the AGA. Thank you. Oh, thank you for the invitation. And for these. <laughs> <laughs>
for the chocolate. Yes, for the chocolate. Yes, that's a necessity. <laughs> In Conversation podcast series is a product of the Art Gallery of Alberta. For more information on Fay Heavy Shield Calling Stones Conversations or other AGA programming, please visit the website at your aga.ca. The AGA would like to thank the artist Fay Heavy Shield, producers Nam Kabeski, Charles Cousins, and Adam Whitford. Thank you to Sarah Tisdale, Alex Keyes, Margie Bartonbird, Barry Reed, Manon Godet, Liz Hill and Laura Ritchie for lending their voices to this podcast.